On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we're going to be chatting about your food since people are hoarding stuff, toilet paper primarily, but food as well. How safe is our food delivery system? How reliable is our food delivery system, especially in times like this? And what happens, even though the prime minister today said the border with the States is going to stay open, what happens if that was to close at some point for safety purposes? What happens to our food? We're also going to chat with Don Robertson about all kinds of stuff. He's here every Monday. Well, he's he's here sort of today. But if you were watching one of the sports networks over the next few weeks when they have nothing live to show, what would you want to watch? What would be the old sports events that you would want to see again? We'll talk about it. Enjoy. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We have heard a lot in the last few days about hoarding. You've seen the images. I'm sure you've seen the video clips or the pictures from Costco. Fist fights over toilet paper. Uh, 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 that is one of the more unusual forms of hoarding. I always thought that if it came to an apocalyptic situation, or at least an apocalyptic situation in people's minds, people would be running for water and dry goods, foods that could sustain them through the long haul. Not toilet paper. Nonetheless, eh, everyone to their own. Maybe they can moisten the toilet paper and eat it or something and get by. I I don't understand the whole thing. Anyway, uh, but yes, we've seen bulk buying at Costco and other places. Clearly, there is concern among some or many people about our food supply. Will I be able to get food down the road? That, that, that has to be the reason why people would be buying as they are. Uh, Premier Doug Ford and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today both said there's no cause for this. Prime Minister said, no, we're, we're going to keep the border with America open. Goods and services and food are going to be coming back and forth and coming into the country. So we're good. Don't worry about it. We're fine. Are they right? Well, let me turn to our friend Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, the Senior Director of Agri-Food Analytics at uh, the agri Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. A guy who is known as the food professor. We love having him on. Doctor, thanks for doing this today. Yeah, good evening. How are you? I'm great. So tell me something. When uh, when Ford and Trudeau say, no worries, we're all good, are they right? I think they are, uh, absolutely. Uh, when I mean, most consumers uh, aren't able to appreciate uh, how complex supply chains are. Uh, and how they've evolved over the last uh, few years. They're, they're smarter and they're more flexible. Um, the, uh, a consumer will walk into a store and will see a, a grocery store, a normal grocery store. Uh, the person will also recognize that there's little inventory, which is probably why people are wondering, well, if uh, shelves are empty, where we're running out of food. Well, actually, no, it's not exactly that. If, if a shelf uh, goes empty, there's, there's a trigger uh, that actually gets to a vendor or vendors, and an order is automatically done. And within days, that, that, that shelf is replenished. Everything is done automatically, and, and vendor relationships are managed very differently than than, say, 10, 15 years ago. So there doesn't even have to be a, um, if you see, pardon me, if you see nothing on the shelf, and, and that seems to be, that seems to have been what has caused the run on stuff, it doesn't mean a shortage. That's right. Well, I mean, people don't realize that, say, the weather, 
can actually impact demand for certain foods on any given day, let alone a, a virus and a pandemic. Uh, if it rains outside, it will impact what people are buying, and sometimes the forecast is not very predictable. Uh, grocers have become very good at anticipating demand, and 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 the difference here is it is a virus. Uh, the supply chain has been preparing for several weeks that we knew we knew was going to come. It's not a natural disaster or something like that. So it really gave time to the entire supply chains to to adjust. And uh, many, many processors have actually come out and said that they were ramping up their production as a result of what was going on with uh, with the coronavirus. And so I suspect most of it was was not noticeable to the public, but I knew that the supply chain uh, was expecting some sort of of a panic panic buying frenzy across the country. The fact that the Prime Minister today said that the U.S. border was remaining open for the transport of goods, should that alone be enough to ease people's minds that we're not about to have a sudden shortage in some stuff? Well, I must say that really was the one thing that got me preoccupied by uh, what was going on, because I can tell you uh, we are okay as long as that border remains open. If that border actually closes, then our conversation right now would be very different. In what way? How does it change? Well, if you so we're mid-March, right? So if you walk into a grocery store mid-March, you start with the with the produce section. Eighty percent of what you would see in a regular grocery store is uh, either comes from the United States or transited through the United States. In the center of the store where a lot of products are being bought right now for provisions at home, for people's homes. Um, 80% of it actually comes from the United States or will will have transited through the United States. That's a reality. And, of course, uh, I I should add that a lot of Canadian companies sell ingredients to the United States to process food that we buy back from them. And so, because there's a lot of Canadian to American products that are actually being imported here. And so, it's an open economy. As soon as you actually, if you block that, uh, it just sucks up all the oxygen out of the agri-food system. And so, I'm trying to think, as even as you're talking in March, so we're not in summertime, so we don't have the harvest and everything going. I'm trying to think of what we here would be good at producing that we could provide for the whole country. And I guess dairy and beef, although beef now, nobody wants to eat beef, apparently. Um, <laughs> and uh, eggs well, and beer and, uh, and wheat and beer, I suppose. I mean, like, there are things that we'd be fine with, but you're right. I mean, there's an awful lot of things that would be no longer in the stores. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, there are sections of the grocery store that uh, no matter what happens to the border, we're, we're, we're going to be okay. But uh, the reality is that if you want Canadians to have access to variety and affordable foods, you need an open economy. That's basically it. As soon as you close borders, uh, it does impact the entire economy, and, and prices could go up. In fact, the one thing that really concerns me right now is the Canadian dollar. Uh, it's five cents cheaper than last week, and if uh, if the loonies downfall, nobody's talking about it, of course, because we are dealing with a public health crisis. But if if the dollar continues its fall, 
you may actually see a few items go up in price, like, for example, produce. Uh, you may remember the infamous cauliflower crisis. Yes, yes, yeah, a few years ago. That was triggered by a weaker Canadian dollar. And it, we're on that path right now. Why do we always have crises of foods that some of us like, not a tofu crisis? Why could there not be a tofu crisis? <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are talking about food because what with the buying that people have been doing, with the panicking in some cases, the panic buying, one of the things, the biggest thing maybe, that is being snatched off the shelves after toilet paper is food. Why is this? Well, we're talking about that one with Dr. Sylvain Charlebois from Dalhousie's, uh, Dalhousie University. And uh, doctor, one of the things that we know, I think it's human nature and you know it and I know it and everyone else knows it. When there is a crisis or when there is an opportunity, uh, the cost of stuff seems to go up. People seem to find an opportunity to make a few extra bucks. Should we be expecting food prices, uh, regard, uh, separate from the loony going down, should we be expecting food prices to start going up? Uh, are you talking about gouging? Um, well, okay, if you want to use that word. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, uh, there's food inflation and there's gouging. Uh, the latter is what I'm talking about. When people see an opportunity and say, hey, people need this stuff, let's charge. Yeah, abuse and, uh, and, and people taking advantage of, of, the, of the context. Uh, I, I honestly uh, feel confident that there's going to be less of that going on, uh, essentially because we have the best police in town. That's called social media. Mm. Uh, you're, as soon as you start playing around with prices to take advantage and take advantage of people, you're probably a minute away from seeing your face on Twitter or Facebook or it, it doesn't take long before people notice. Although over the weekend, I actually did see uh, accusations uh, uh, basically aiming at companies that were uh, pri- or allegedly price gouging, but I actually looked at prices and uh, I follow prices very closely and I, I actually thought that prices were quite normal. So I suspect that people, because they were a little intense and anxious, just basically believed that the company uh, just was trying to uh, increase prices for, for, for no reason. And so you, we have to be careful. Social media is a powerful tool for consumers. And it is protecting consumers, but we can't really abuse uh, of our of our power as consumers. One of the interesting things that's going on right now is some companies are having to send workers home because uh, of concerns for self-quarantining and all the rest. And yet the humane thing to do, the thing that is, I think most people are now saying you should be doing is to continue to pay your workers, because it's not their fault that they are off. Uh, you're a food expert. Restaurants yep. are part of food. Um, if this persists, if we have people who can't go out, you're not supposed to gather in restaurants. I saw today that Starbucks is taking chairs and Tim, Hort- Tim Hortons are taking chairs out, so you just go in and move along. If it McDonald's persists... McDonald's just announced that it's shutting down its dining room. There you go. Well. Yep. If this stuff persists and we have all these staff people who are now at home... And companies, and I'm not talking about the big companies like Starbucks, the multinationals. I'm talking about the small restaurants. And you've got owners who are not making a fortune having to pay their workers. This could lead to problems down the road, couldn't it? 
Absolutely. I mean, this this uh, crisis is affecting a lot of people, and uh, and of course, uh, people with low wages working hard at at these uh, restaurants. The food service industry hires a lot of people, and uh, and I and I know I, I saw a lot of farmers uh, being concerned about uh, about uh, you know what what's going on with the commodity <laughs> prices, but. I don't think there's a sector uh, which is going to suffer more than tourism and food service. Oh my God, uh, it's a bloodbath out there, and uh, and so employees obviously will will suffer as well. Now, some provinces I know that in Nova Scotia, uh, some employees who are affected by what's going on will be compensated. I'm not in, I'm not entirely uh, aware of what's happening in Ontario, but across the country. Uh, Provisions were given to provinces to compensate uh, employees that are being affected directly by what's going on. So restaurants that are, that are closing dining rooms uh, basically have an excuse to go back to the province and ask for some compensation to, to help and to keep their, their employees and, and weather this thing through. Well, and it becomes a very tricky spot because if you pay your employees who are home, um, you may go bankrupt. If you don't pay them, you're a jerk. Either way, you're in a, you're in a pickle here if you're, if you're not doing it. Oh, absolutely. And so you're, you have to be in good faith. And, uh, and I suspect that most of the companies will be careful. Again, it only takes one silly decision to jeopardize the yeah. brand or a brand. So, and of course, the the, the most effective way to damage a brand these days is to hurt your human capital. So I suspect some, some people will actually do the arithmetic. It is, uh, it's an interesting one. The food sector is such an interesting part of this story that, uh, that kind of gets lost a little right now because so many other things are going on, but I have a feeling that... Uh, well, you know what? You're my 20th interview today. So apparently so it's not under the water. actually looking at food. Well, clearly, <laughs> clearly. It's a, it, look, it's, it's, it is the most important, other than our health, it's the most important next thing in this story. And um, anyway, Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, always appreciate the time. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Uh, yeah, uh, it, it's, it's, it's just startling to think what could happen if all borders shut down. I mean, if we got to that point where we had to do this and we're worried that a virus is coming in on goods or on service, oh boy, it is, uh, I hope you like bread and beef and beer. Maybe a few other things, but we're good at that in Canada. You can live on that, I suppose, for a while. In fact, some people do already. <laughs> You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let me welcome in our regular Monday evening guest, only this time from a few kilometers away, Don Robertson. Don, thanks for doing this today. Scott, how are you? Good. You're welcome. I, I am good. I hope you're uh, locked down in quarantine, wrapped in bubble wrap, and um, bathing yourself in hand sanitizer from tip to toe. That's I do that all the time anyway, so that's <laughs> not even new. Just lay in the bathtub and get it squirted all over you for safety purposes. <laughs> oh, boy. Images. Um, <laughs> I don't know why you went there. But I don't. I, I I regretfully realized halfway through where I was going and immediately regretted doing so. Uh, <laughs> uh, I got a bunch of stuff I want to ask you about, but first off, I, I just want to ask you about this because I know this hits you directly, and it also hits a lot of other people. A uh, lot of announcements, obviously, of pretty much everything being shut down in the last few days. It was on, I think. Um, Thursday night, Friday night, something in that neighborhood that the Thursday Allen Cup. Night, uh, 
eight o'clock. Yep. That you got notice that the Allen Cup was done. Uh, Hamilton and you and Dundas were supposed to be co-hosting the Allen Cup. I mean, I get that these things are shut down. The part about this that's unique to me is this isn't the Stanley Cup Finals. This isn't the World Series. This is a smaller event. I'm sorry. I mean, that's reality, but it's private money. This is your money, and Jason Dalio uh, and George Roku own the Hamilton Steelhawks. This is private money that has gone into doing this. This is real money you're losing. Yeah, it is, and uh, it's almost cruel and unusual punishment when you think the fact that we played in front of sparse crowds at Harry Hall Arena for two years, and and uh, the crowds come back nicely when we came back home to Dundas, and then you get hit with this. It's, you, you almost start thinking somebody's trying to send me a message. But being the thick-headed guy I am, we're not going to likely get the message. Um, yeah, it is. It's uh, Hockey Canada canceled it. We all know why. We all know why everything else is shut down. But the significant difference between this national championship um, of the Allen Cup and all of the other national championships is you're right. This is privately funded. Jason and George and I are on the hook for whatever money we've invested and, and what, what commitments we've made. We're going to try and uh, alleviate some of those commitments. We have some pretty good partners that hopefully will be very understanding. And, um, and plus, on, on top of that, of course, we're giving 100% refund back to any sponsors and or ticket holders. So, you know, we're not we're not dragging anybody else into this mess with us. It's it's going to be all on us, but we'll um, we'll get through it. It's just we had a conference call with Hockey Canada today, and they were sympathetic, although they didn't get their checkbook out. They were sympathetic. Yeah, but so, okay. So uh, I wasn't involved in the conversation, but sympathy is great. But if you're down tens of thousands of dollars, your sympathy doesn't exactly count for very much. Did they give any indication they were going to help out? Uh, they said it's a unique situation, and they certainly understand it. And they don't want private partners uh, losing their shirt on this. But I don't think they'll make us whole on it. But I think between the Ontario Hockey Association and the Ontario Hockey Federation and Hockey Canada, they're going to provide some help. And... That's what we're going to take, and and we'll live with it. We'll make it work. Whatever they decide, they're going to come forth with will be won't be found money. I guess it's found money if it's lost money. So that might be a good way to describe it. But you know, we'll we'll have to uh, we'll have to sort out what to do about it. We've got some good partners that uh, that may step up and help as well. And but it's just it's just sad. I mean, there there's thousands and thousands of volunteer hours that have been invested in this event at both buildings at Dave Andertruck and, uh, and Greitmeyer, uh, Bob Pearson, who does our pra- uh, program layout. And he was putting together the picture ID for the Lanterns and each team's eight hours. He was three teams in before he did it. I mean, you're not looking for anything back for volunteer hours, but you know, we had design work done. We've had pucks produced. Uh, I'd ordered new jerseys for us, uh, that I was able to stop, but just, we don't even know what our expenses will be because we don't even know what all we can get stopped. But this is an event that there is um, still across this country limited numbers of places that could or would host it because there's limited number of places that have senior hockey. And if you guys are on the hook for, as I say, and, and I'm not exaggerating, I don't think, but tens of thousands of dollars, 
and Hockey Canada doesn't come forward with something to help out, at least to make it close, I got to believe there's an awful lot of other places in that loop of cities or towns or organizing committees that might someday be interested in doing this who say, wait a second, uh, I'm not taking a risk because it may not be coronavirus next time. It might be a terrorist attack. It might be a this, it might be a that. I'm not going to risk being that much in the hole. No, it's it's, uh, it's unique situations that will develop different plans and different escape hatches to be used. I mean, there, I mean, there's all kinds of things that can cancel an event like this, right? A city strike can do it where the buildings are closed, but then do you move it to Brantford to try and salvage the event? And um, snowstorms, that because it's still going to be April, and, you know, we played in Newfoundland one year. I mean, who knows what can happen? But under those circumstances, you're likely just delayed. I mean, this thing's canceled. We had, Jason and I had talked about, and I mentioned to Hockey Canada, that, you know, if things get straightened out, this is last Thursday, and things were changing every 24 hours, as everybody's aware, that, you know, things calm down. We've still got the ice booked. We've got the advertising, which had already rolled out on CHML and your sister stations. Uh I mentioned to Hockey Canada that Dundas and Hamilton would play for the national championship, and they, they didn't scuttle it. They said, you know, it's a little early because we just told you we're canceling everything, but we'll talk about it. And then now, you know, all the buildings are closed, and so that's off the rails. You're right. There may be, there, there may be more safeguards put in place so that if it does happen, the host committee doesn't get hammered. You know, some places, I mean, some this is not a revenue generating uh, uh, exercise for us. It was bringing the national championship back to uh, Dundas and, and Hamilton. But, you know, in, in other parts of Canada, the afternoon games are sold out, the evening games are sold out. And we're not naive enough to think that that can happen, which is why we're both having, we're both going to have night games. So, I mean, it can be a source of revenue, but this will, this will change the mindset and the thinking of lots of national championships, and more specifically this one that is privately funded. And it probably won't just be this. I mean, you've got other sports that people put money into, and, you know, I mean, most, I would think, national championships below a certain level. I mean, again, not professional, not NHL, not NBA. Um, You know, I'm thinking of the Canadian Little League Championship that was held here, or, or, you know, you get a variety of other ones. You you now run a risk that this could go go south, and boy, you're stuck holding the bag. Well, what's, uh, oh, is it the Pan Am Games? No, they were just... Commonwealth. Commonwealth Games. I mean, what would happen if the Commonwealth Games were supposed to start today? You know, there's going to be, if they come to Hamilton for the 100th anniversary the millions and millions of private funding, city funding, provincial funding, federal funding, do they postpone them? I mean, do they postpone them a year? But hotels, like, you know, if that were the case in something the size of the Commonwealth Games, hotel rooms, they would have had all the hotel rooms booked in Hamilton. They would have had to secure them. So if you cancel it four or five days ahead of time, it's not like anybody else is coming in to use those. No, rooms. but if you cancel them three or four weeks or two or three months ahead of time, you probably don't have to pay much, if at all, and suddenly now all the places that were banking on that business are staring at an empty checkbook. Well, the uh, Hockey Canada said that the economic impact of the Allen Cup would be 
uh, in excess of two and a half million dollars. And you know what? For downtown Dundas and the Hamilton Mountain area and the restaurants up there, that's a pretty significant chunk of cash. The hotel rooms that were going to be used, we were going to have at least three teams. New Brunswick, we're bringing 55 people. Like, those are pretty – they they got to eat all week. Those are pretty significant impacts to our community, and they would be gone. But you're right, on a smaller scale, it's not small to, uh, to George and Jason and I, but on the greater scheme of things, it's not the biggest event that would come to Hamilton. But when you break it down to the significance of the local people – in an isolated area, it was a big deal. Yep, and and your point about the Commonwealth Games is uh, hadn't even thought about that, but is very well well made. That I mean, you just you you do all these things. You don't think about it because we've never really had an Olympics, at least since the war years. And even then, I mean, Jesse Owens ran in the Olympics, uh, the uh, a warrior time. So. Um, you know, these things don't really get canceled. And if something ever did, boy, oh boy, you then start to imagine what the risk is that well, you're playing you, with. You, you have to think that PJ Mercanti and his crew are now going, you know, we, we have to start entertaining the thought process of, um, event cancellation insurance, which you can buy for events if there's a natural cause, whether it's a tornado or a hurricane or anything else. But I'll tell you, the price of tea just went up. When it comes to viruses and situations like this, I'm sure that kind of that that into your insurance package for event insurance would have been not that significant. Phone the insurance company today; it'll be a different conversation, I'm sure. <laughs> I think I think you're right. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Bring Don Robertson back into the conversation here. Don, calling in today because you know there's this thing called a coronavirus and. We're basically on lockdown here at the Chorus CHML World Headquarters. Trying to keep me and you apart? Well, something like that. Trying to keep everybody apart from everybody. I I was told today that they did a deep clean of this studio, which is great, except now that if I ever feel the need to cough or if I have to sneeze for any reason, I feel terribly guilty because the air will never leave here. But even though I don't have it that I know of, I don't have it, so just to be clear. (laughs) Uh, Don, the... Among all the fact, uh, besides all the fact that the sports are all canceled, we don't have hockey, we don't have basketball, we don't have everything. Uh, that hurts the teams. That obviously hurts the leagues. That hurts the fans. But something that we're just now beginning to see is we have two sports networks in this country that have, I think, a combined thirteen channels. That suddenly they have nothing to put on there. There is nothing live. Even UFC that was going ahead with their cards and they had one on the weekend, they have now said we're canceling the next three. And WWE has just announced that the WrestleMania that was going this weekend has now been, well, it's not canceled, but it's going to be held in a special place somewhere with no fans. It's just going to be streamed and shown live. So everything Dawn is gone. Everything. So the sports networks, I, I was in touch with them today. I was doing a piece for the paper and I said, what do you do? And they got back to me later this afternoon. One of them, TSN, said it's still something we're working on. And Sportsnet's plan, apparently, is that they are going to be going heavy on old sporting events, things from the past, fan favorites, big moments, memorable games, whatever. That being said, let's say Don Robertson has the complete run of the vault. You can go to any number of sports events from the past, doesn't matter if Sportsnet or TSN has the rights or not. 
What are the things that you would actually sit down in front of the TV and spend a couple hours watching if they put it on there? Well, I guess one of the one of the things that I would probably enjoy a little bit would be the 72 Summit Series. Now, when I say that, there was no rink boards. Phil Esposito was taking two-and-a-half-minute shifts, <laughs> and the speed of the game was probably like an old-timers game. And that's no disrespect to those athletes. That's just the way they were asked to play the game. I would find that intriguing. The Canada Cup game, and I was lucky enough to be at it, I think it was 87 at Cops Coliseum when Gretzky did Lemieux. That was a fabulous game. It would be hard to get tired of watching that that goal again or that event i mean that was a pretty pretty high profile event uh ben johnson's uh yes nine nine seconds of fun you have to replay that in slow motion four or five times you know let me interrupt for just one sec i want you to keep going but the, the thing with all of these i think to make them really um really interesting you have to do them with the full context like you can't i don't think with the ben johnson thing for example you can just show Ben Johnson lining up as they come out there and then, oh, there goes Ben Johnson. Like, you have to give the the evening's show on, I think it was probably on CBC at that time. So you got the full sense of the build-up and then what would be even cooler is if that if you did a 24-hour Olympic thing, one of the nights on, on one of these stations, so that you broke into coverage at the exact same moment that it would have happened. So you could watch it as if it was happening again with Brian Williams announcing that there'd been a drug test. That would be fascinating to see that again. Well, it would be. And it would, and, and when you, if you did things like that, which again, 87 was a big year. Uh, I think it was 87 or 88. 88. Goal, I think. Yep. And, but to put it in context for a generation that really don't know what we were talking about or what anybody was talking about to put the whole thing into perspective, it, you know, you can't do it. Well, the bars are closing. But, you know, at Ducks at the Collins Hotel, the race was on that night. I mean, the whole place went crazy. So to capture the context, I guess you could only, as you say, show the entire show. But it would be so cool. It, it, it would be. I, yeah, go ahead. No, it would. It would. It would be absolutely. And, and one of the things. Now, unfortunately, the one thing you can't capture, I don't think. And it's the same with the 72 series. So much of that was the feeling that people had about the opponent at the time. It's impossible, even though I agree with you, that it would be great for a, another generation that didn't see the Ben Johnson thing to be able to experience it. But they'll never understand how much people in Canada hated Carl Lewis in order to fully appreciate how much it meant when Ben Johnson beat him. And I don't know how you get that across. You just, you can't. So you can well, have... Well, in the end of the, end of the Cold War with the 72 summit exactly. series in Russia, you can't, you're right. You can't capture that. The other thing that probably changes the perspective is, you know, who won <laughs> that's right? Don, but you're, you know what, that's the problem with all of this stuff because the, they always say that sports is the one thing that, uh, it still works on TV for advertisers and stuff because you don't tape it. You, you, if you don't want to know how many times have you been somewhere and someone says, I'm, I, I don't want to know who won cause I've got it taping at home. As soon as you know the result, so much of yeah. what you're watching goes out the window because the suspense is gone. One of the other, one one thing that would be pretty popular if you could go and uh, 
go on YouTube and pull down the 2014 Allen Cup championship game that went to double <laughs> overtime. Yeah, that, hey, people would watch that. You know, anything that is anything that is a, a good memory. And there were a lot of people that day that were in the rink, and a lot of people were watching it. Uh, I was trying to stream it from my sister's place. We were having it was on Easter Sunday, as I recall, that day. Um, uh, Saturday. It was a Saturday. Was it Easter Saturday? Okay, so that's yeah. what. Uh, you know what? There are all of these things. I've always thought. Now, I don't suspect that the sports network should be doing this, and certainly um, the news networks have enough going on. They're not going to do it. I've always thought one of to, to give the context idea with these sports things. One of the most fascinating things when we ever, whenever we see now highlights, and I hate using that word because it was really not a highlight at all. But when we see the replays of nine eleven with the planes hitting the towers and stuff. We always see it in the terms of a, a d- documentary or a narrative where we just sort of jump in and see that happen and then know what happened. You know what we never see is the two hours before then or hour before then of the morning shows, the Today Show or Good Morning America or whatever, that was just a very normal day carrying on and all of a sudden this happens. Which, which when I've gone back and watched that online, it changes the feeling of the moment entirely. And so to do this with sports would be the same thing, I think. Well, it, it is. And, but you're right. When you know the end result, the, the best way to capture it would be to put the, doing it to, and rolling the tape back before uh, Ben Johnson was in the starting blocks and everything else it would help put it in a more proper perspective. And I'm sure the narrative that night was how big it was and the, the rivalry with Carl Lewis. It would capture some of that for those people that didn't know, and probably for an hour before that, they would they probably showed some highlights, and I don't recall um, of previous races and the rivalry that they had, and you know Carl Lewis chirping off. You know he was uh, looked good. They should have tripped him. <laughs> well, you know, and then go a step further. Go from there to Donovan Bailey with Michael Johnson. In the from the Olympics and then into the 150 meter race, they had that special race at Skydome once upon a time. That was uh, special. Th- th- those things are unbelievable memories. I I would say this: if Sportsnet really, and I mean, look, they they have people who are way smarter than I am. I'm guessing to be able to put their programming together, but if they wanted to do something that would cover the next two weeks and give them an absolute break for the next two weeks, they wouldn't have to do anything. Just replay the Vancouver Olympics. Because for most Canadians, that entire two weeks plus was so good, so memorable that, and we don't see much of it anymore, at least not in its entirety, but there, there's so many moments in there with all the medals and all the Canadiana things. People would sit down, I guarantee you, and watch huge chunks of that, especially if they're home, as if they were watching it again. Some people want to, may want to watch that Vancouver goal, the golden goal with Crosby. I That's- think a few. That's that's in more recent memory, but you're right. It's hard to capture it um, in the proper context this much. Now Crosby's goal, everybody would remember, and they still know how big a deal that was. But there are there are a number of things that you just can't capture what it meant to our country and what the significance of the games were. I mean, I mean, if you think about it, what one thing they could do is they'd have to colorize it though. They show the Toronto Maple Leafs winning their last Stanley Cup. Now, you want to talk about hockey that was moving slowly. Uh, oh. Seen that a few times, and it's, again, different times. It's not, a, it's not a knock against the men who played at that time. It was, it was completely different. I mean, it, it, 
it, it's it sounds like an insult. It's not meant to be that way. But the team, the best team from the seventies, if you took the nineteen seventy five Montreal Canadiens and put them on the ice today against the worst team in the NHL, the worst team in the NHL would beat them handily. Now you I, would I, you would say that you know, and we're not talking about. If you took Guy Lapointe and Larry Robinson and Serge Savard and Yvonne Cornwallier and Guy Lafleur and all them and made them 2020 athletes, they would be different. I'm saying as they played then, yeah. at the speed they played then, they would be demolished. They would, they would If they were around today, well, first of all, they'd be 75 years old, so they'd probably lose. But, uh, but if they played as they, as they, if you advance them forward and be modern athletes, they'd all be great. They were great athletes. But it's just stunning to see how slow the hockey was back then. Well, conditioning. Yes, con- equipment. Conditioning. I'll, 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 I'll ask you something. How, I mean, we, it's, a diff- it's a different era, but it'd be interesting to see how the mid-'80s Oilers would do today. Yeah. Assuming that they would be in similar condition, because they weren't, the athletes weren't in as good physical condition back then. The Oilers were better because it was it was later, but boy, that Oilers team had an awful lot of talent. I think they could play today. I was watching, even though, even though Gretzky sixty, well fifty nine. No, I was watching uh, a little bit. They had one of those games on. They had the game on the other night uh, where he he passed Gordy Howe for the all time goal scoring record as a member of the Kings. And you talk about long shifts from Phil Esposito. Wayne Gretzky took long shifts. Now, he was a, a fitness freak, but he took long shifts. And the difference, I mean, you look at how the goalies played then, and this is part of the thing, too. It's it's a bit of a fun thing to watch the old hockey because you look and you go, man, those goalies were different. They stood up, and you could come down the wing and take a slap shot and score like you never could now. And so you say, oh, well, look, it was way easier for Wayne Gretzky than all those points. Like, goalies weren't nearly as good. That's true. At the same time, uh, when he would come across center ice, guys would be water skiing behind him because they were hooking him so much and they were holding on to him. You know, it, it, it goes both ways. There were things that made hockey easier back then and there were things that made hockey way harder back then. Well, one of the big differences with goaltenders, I don't know, uh, I don't know how much difference there is in the goaltenders, but I can tell you that today's goaltenders wear small pintos on their legs as pads and shoulder pads like football players. And if you look at, you know, Donnie Edwards, what he wore when he played for the Buffalo Sabres and Mike Palmatier and the gear they wore versus the gear the guys wear now, I mean, the, it's totally different and it's modernized because the weight of a pad, I remember those pads you wore when you're out with Rick Vive, like they, they, you know, they probably weighed 20 pounds a piece or 40 pounds a piece. These things today, I mean, a two-year-old could pick up a goalie pad, and 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 they're they're so well structured, they're so safe for the athlete, and they weigh nothing. No horse hair in them anymore. No, um, Mr. Pops Kineski doesn't have to go to the local barber down the street and buy get any more horse hair or human hair to uh, to fill them up. That's uh, that is for sure. Uh, the other one, just as we wrap up here, the other thing that I would love to see, and I don't know that you could do it today is there, I would love to see a few days of nothing but the greatest fights ever, boxing matches. The only reason I say you couldn't necessarily do it, I think for a lot of people, we have such a different sensibility now about hits to the head and fighting and everything else that a lot of people would grimace at it. But if you go back and watch the, I don't know if you remember the the uh, Mickey Ward, Arturo Gotti trilogy, uh, one of the greatest 
sets of three fights ever. They just pounded on each other for three fights. Phenomenal action. I think a lot of people now might look at that and go, ooh, I don't know if I like to watch that knowing what it could do to a guy's head, but man, I, I would watch that for sure. Unbelievable fighting. Well, Muhammad Ali, you know, the uh, rumble in the jungle and the greatest fight ever with him and Fra- Joe Frazier in uh, Madison Square Gardens. You know what? It Put it on. I mean, well, first of all, they're going to have an awful lot of air time to fill. And if you don't like it, put on Fox News. Put Let's on it, Global. Well, w- something. There's always Netflix. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don Robertson chatting sports from home today, not in studio. The world is on lockdown, but we're still glad he's here. Don, there is a memo apparently that is out from the NHL. I'm not sure who wrote it or where it's from, but it's one of those things that they're very optimistically looking at. Okay, what happens if this whole thing gets sorted out in the next little while? Four weeks, five weeks, six weeks, I don't know. And one of the proposals that someone has made is, hey, what if we did a 24-team Stanley Cup tournament? Regular season's done, 24 teams get in, and we're going to have some sort of tournament to see who ends up winning the Cup. Does that diminish things at all, or is that fine with everybody who's in hockey? Well, I think it'd be fine with everybody. Now, the one thing that wouldn't happen is if you did brackets, like March Madness, but we all know in professional sports, nobody's going with just one playoff game because that's where the revenue is. They'd be doing this to generate revenue. Um, but I, I don't think it's just a different method of doing it. I mean, they used to, remember, they used to do two out of three series. They used to do three out of five series. You know, that's back when Toronto would play L.A., right, because they didn't have divisions. It was top the bottom, or maybe Toronto was in the West. I don't know. But they used to play L.A., who really cares? There will be a drop-dead deadline. No, and I understand the NHL teams have told their players to go back home, and so that will be to Europe for some of them. So if that's the case, if they're going to send guys truly home or let them go home and they go to Europe, I don't know if they're bringing them back real quick with what's going on. Well, no, especially if the rules are that you can't get here from Europe or you can't get into the States and you're supposed to have a self-quarantine period and all the rest. Who knows how long that would take. The, the only, see, here's the funny thing about this one. The proposal, as I've read it, would be that you would have this 24-team tournament, any team as it stands, and again, this is, this is just a, a thrown-out-there idea, but any team that finished over 500 would be eligible to be in this thing. Okay, well, that's fine. But the interesting thing is the proposal, as I've seen it, is that the first-place team would play the 12th-place team or something like that. It would be 1 versus 12 on each side, which... Is so ironic because so many people have been arguing that's the way the playoffs should yeah, be right. anyway all the time. Forget this stupid division thing where you end up with the three best teams potentially in the same division. Why aren't we doing this to me? If you're throwing this one out as a wild idea, let's just go with it anyway. Seems to make the most sense. Well, it might give them a reason to start talking about doing that anyway. I mean, I know that one of the rationale, part of the rationale has been. We want rivalries to play each other. You know, they got the Metropolitan Division. It's great for travel. It's almost a bus league like our, like the Allen Cup Hockey League. But if you – I don't think that the American teams and, – and make no mistake, this was done for the American teams. The, the rationale was they're not drawing well. Their attendance isn't good. 
I don't think that's near the issue today in the National Hockey League as it was before. I don't know if Carolina have two teams that automatically fill their rink if they're not the Montreal Canadiens and Toronto Maple Leafs. You know what I mean? I don't think the rivalry of uh, – it's still a good rivalry when you talk about Calgary and Edmonton. But Edmonton filled the rink all the time. How many Montreal truly, basically filled the rink all the time. How many truly great rivalries are there, Don? In the NHL, how many truly great rivalries are there? Well, there's one back with uh, because of all the fisticuffs and, and stuff with Edmonton and Calgary. Yep, agreed. Um, I would say Toronto-Montreal could be if they could ever play each other again in meaningful games. I think that rivalry will always be there. I don't think Ottawa have one. Boston-Montreal, Montreal's likely got yes. two. They still hate each other. The Islanders and the Rangers, but it's been so long since they've played any meaningful games in the playoffs. I don't think New Jersey ever had one. Geography might have said it was the Rangers, but I don't think they truly ever had one. Washington-Pittsburgh maybe right now because of Crosby and Ovechkin there. They go at each other pretty hard. But There's been a fantasy uh, a fantasy rivalry with Tampa Bay and the Panthers, but it's until you've met a few times and build up that hatred in the playoffs, I don't think you can build a rivalry, and there haven't been an awful lot of them recently on a regular basis to let those guys play each other. One of the things, and I've argued this for a long, long time, we always hear about the Argos-Ticats rivalry, which I always tend to poo-poo because for a rivalry to be a real rivalry, it has to go both ways. Both sides, both fan bases have to be truly upset when their side loses. I mean, it has to really matter for something. And I know the Ticat fans mind when they lose to the Argos, but does anybody in Toronto care when the Argos lose to the Ticats? Not really. Maybe seven people. So That's all their fans. That's right. But all these rivalries you're talking about with the Florida-Tampa, or some of them anyway, I I don't even count that one as a rivalry because the folks in Tampa who are big hockey fans, they may care, but I'm not sure that four people in Sunrise, Florida, are losing sleep if they lose to their Lightning. Well, so, that's why I call it. That's why I call it a fantasy yeah, rivalry. No, you no, would it's, think state to state, it would be province to province. But remember, the Flames and the Oilers played played each other a lot back in the eighties. And remember, in the eighties, the best two teams in the National Hockey League might have been in Calgary and Edmonton for about mm-hmm. four years. Yep. No, absolutely. I mean, to speak to speak to your comment about letting the top place team play the bottom place team basically meant that. Edmonton and Calgary could never meet in the Stanley Cup final, and yet that may have been one of the best Stanley Cup finals you could ever see. Well, let me throw one other thing at you. we got a minute or so left here. Do, do, would you say that the Toronto-Boston rivalry is a great rivalry right now? Because I don't think it's a great rivalry. I think Toronto fans don't have this burning desire to have to beat. They'd like to beat Boston, but I think they'd just as soon never play them again, quite honestly. it's. It, I, don't, I, I think it's a... Um, They've run into each other a lot, but I don't think that if you ask Toronto fans who's your biggest rival, I don't think one percent are going to say Boston. Well, I don't. I don't think it's a rivalry as much as it is a hatred because they can't get by them. Maybe you know, for for a true rivalry to take place, there has to be one. You know, Boston can be three and two in the last five series. But Boston are like thirty-seven and zero. 
I mean, I think the Toronto fans just hate Boston. Don't for don't a rivalry. It's a rivalry. For a rivalry, don't you have to have both fan bases wanting to play the other one because you can't wait to see them play again? And I, I don't see that with Leaf fans. I just don't. Well, I don't think I don't I, I think Leaf fans would be happy if they never played the Boston Bruins again. So. I would agree, and that it, makes it so, tough to so say it's a rivalry. Of a rivalry gets rid of that. It is. Uh, I, I mean, look. If, if you could, if if hockey could come back before August which who knows when this thing is going to come to an end. Uh, you know what? If you want to do a 24-team, best two out of three, get it done in a month kind of thing, I don't know how you do it. I really don't. I don't know how you cram it all in there before the next season starts. But, um, I, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure that the, the concern was that this somehow diminishes the Stanley Cup. I'm not sure it diminishes the Stanley Cup. No, it's still going to be. You're still going to award the Stanley Cup no matter what. It might be a different type of a format. The interesting thing would be, and I don't know how much time we got because I'm not there. But um, when you look at uh, Rogers, who are the rights holders for the playoffs in Canada, that's going to be right in the middle of the Blue Jays season. And they do all the Blue Jay games. Now they'd find somewhere to fit them in, but you know that they'll be cannibalizing their own viewership between the Blue Jays. Well, if the Leafs went on a run, I mean, I guess you take the good with the bad. But now you got one network with too many sports going on. Well, you got seven channels, though. So you put a few on one, a few on the other, and you make sure that every single person who's watching sports is watching it on your network, and I guess you live with that. Yeah, I guess so. That's not the worst thing that could happen, though. Don Robertson, thanks for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks, Scott. Have a good night. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.